So there's a man named Nikolai Sjardristi, one of the world's most remarkable artists. He is a, an expert at what he does. What's so remarkable about Nikolai's work is that he could literally put his entire life's work on the tips of your fingers. Because Nikolai is a micro-miniature sculptor. Now, he's a master at manipulating and controlling the minute in such a way as to create masterpieces of microscopic beauty. What has Nikolai created? Well, for example, according to one writer, he has poised a bunch of gold camels inside the eye of a needle, along with a pyramid and a palm tree. He's inserted a flea-sized red rose inside a hollowed-out human hair. That's a human hair that looks like a vase. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, there's a museum in the Ukraine housing all of these minuscule creations that he's put together. There's another man named Nikolai Aldunin. Now, what is it with the name Nikolai? He was born in 1956, a year before me, a Russian artist noted for his microscopic art described as masterpieces and, and pioneering work. Poses here in this picture in the work area of his Moscow apartment, his tools include superglue, syringes, and toothpicks. A microscope dates to 1985, and his work includes a camel train inside the eye of a needle as well. And many other works, as you will see as they get scrolled through. Famous in Russia and around the world, he has also motivated the creation of a museum for miniatures in Moscow. Now, micro-miniature artists must overcome huge obstacles. A single sneeze, a cough, a misdirected breath or nervous twitch can completely annihilate months of intricate work. Another extreme challenge is static electricity. When I was working on the Oasis scene, says Nikolai, I lost two camels because of the static electricity. <laughs> Must be like getting hit by lightning, I suppose. <laughs> An electrical surge is like a giant catastrophe for these little miniatures. But to carve a chess set balanced on the head of a pin or an electric motor smaller than the belly of an ant, which has been done, these artists must wear thick Coke bottle-like glasses and peer through a microscope in order to work. Countless hours of careful controlled movement is involved in this, and the work is painstaking and time-consuming, and understandably, there are only a handful of other micro-miniature artists in the entire world. How incredibly difficult is it to work with and control small things? And how extremely critical it is. Every one of us in this room, though many of us may not realize it, is faced with an equally critical and much more difficult responsibility in life. Like the Nikolais, you and I are, in a sense, our sculptors, artists, and craftsmen. With our speech, we either craft masterpieces or we create havoc. Our tool? The tongue. Small, delicate, yet extremely potent, this tremendously, it's tremendously difficult to manage. How we use it is absolutely critical, for it reveals who we really are from the inside out. 
In addressing a group of high-profile teachers, Jesus sculpted the quintessential truth about our speech. He said these words in Matthew chapter 12. He said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Words, my friends, are powerful. Words reveal what is really inside of us. And they are pitched forth often uncontrollably by one of the smallest, most untamed, unmanageable muscles in your entire body, your tongue. And once they're out there, they are impossible to recover. Think about some of the words people say that can never be retrieved. I hate you. Get lost. I wish you were dead. I wish I'd never met you. Can't you do anything right? He's such an idiot. I never want to see you again. Probably one of the most disturbing and commonly used phrases, yet eternally devastating. And you hear people say it. You can go to hell. Is there anything more eternally irreversible than that? Have you ever uttered words which you wished you had never said before? I know the Apostle Peter did. Remember Peter? Though all may fall away, yet I will not fall away. I do not know the man you're talking about. How about the self-condemning words of the crowds when Jesus stood before them and they yelled, crucify him. Words are powerful and the way we use them is very critical. Advertising agencies depend on them. We persuade men and women with them. The Christian preaches, teaches, and prays with them. But are we routinely responsible with them? Words can wound or words can heal. They can degrade or they can uplift. They can give life or they can condemn. Solomon wrote, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Fact is, controlling what we say as well as when we say it speaks volumes about the reality and sincerity of our faith. Because words wield so much power, a believer's greatest responsibility is learning to control their speech. And taming the tyrannical tongue is no easy chore, is it? It has, it seems, a mind of its own. It doesn't, does it? It doesn't. Mastering it, though, is no easy task. It's a matter of self-control, and self-control is a matter of spiritual maturity. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control happens when people submit themselves to the Christ's lordship. Amen? Now, the Bible has a lot to say about what we say. In Proverbs alone, the term tongue, mouth, lips, and words are mentioned almost 150 times. And that's an average of about five times per chapter. There's 30 chapters. 
The book of James refers to the use of our tongue in every chapter. But in chapter 3, he places it under the microscope. And he says, like a micro-miniature artist, the Lord's half-brother crafts a three-dimensional view of our need to reverse its tyrannical reign over us. Through the lens of Scripture, the critical lens of Scripture, James chapter 3 gives us one of the most comprehensive teachings on the subject of the tongue in all of the Scripture. His overwhelming message can be pared down to three words. Watch your mouth. Why? Simply because an uncontrolled tongue reveals an immature faith. An uncontrolled tongue reveals an immature faith. Standing between the contrasting themes of a working faith, which we looked at last week in chapter 2, and a worldly faith, which we're going to see later on in chapter 3, is the tongue. It's the great unveiler. And by the way, how's your tongue? In need of a little speech therapy? Well, we all are. I'd like you to turn to James chapter 3. And... I want to read James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. But we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also, <clears throat> the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Can I say that again? My brethren, these things ought ought not to be. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Well, there's a mouthful. James draws us into this text whether we want to go there or not. And the first thing that he says, in my opinion here, is that an immature faith is exposed. Actually, it's not my opinion. It's what he says. 
And immature faith is exposed by a lack of verbal responsibility. We're only going to look at the first two verses this morning. The rest of it we're going to look at next time. Two verses. Verse number one, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, because our words are such powerful tools, James warns us of their use. He and he who wields the power of words more than a teacher. Tell me, who? Verse one again, let not many of you become teachers. My brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. He's including himself in this. I would just as soon avoid this section of Scripture, the Bible. Why? Because I'm putting my head, or my tongue as it were, on the chopping block here. And whenever I encounter this verse, I shudder. Why? Because what exactly is James saying? Is he trying to discourage people or anyone from becoming a teacher? No. And we'll see why in a minute. The term teachers in this context is used in the sense of rabbis who were avid students of the Scriptures, who drew out from the Scriptures spiritual and practical applications to life, who also shouldered the responsibility of teaching what they had learned to other people. Paul places teachers in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28 right alongside apostles and prophets in the important matter of explaining the faith to others as well as providing the exposition of the Old Testament. Now the office of teacher was considered by the Jews to be a very prominent position in Israel. Nicodemus, for example, was esteemed as the teacher of Israel in John chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus called him the teacher of Israel, indicating his high level of mastery of the scriptures. And the synagogues in Jesus' day were conducted as sort of an open discussion. It's not kind of like what we do here. What we used to do years ago when I first started as a pastor here on Sunday nights, I'd stand up here, open my Bible, and we'd have an open discussion about the text we were considering. Of course, we only had 10 or 20 people at that time, so it was a little easier to conduct a service like that. But that's the way it used to be in the synagogues. A person who desired to do so actually was invited to teach. In fact, the early church had a similar practice. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you'll see that. We don't have to turn there now. We're not going there. But if you, if you, it shows that that's kind of the motif that was going on then. The position of teacher then became such a, a sought-after position because of the honor and the respect that accompanied it in those days. Now, it's not a bad thing to want to be a teacher. In fact, the writer of Hebrews encourages believers to move toward it, seeing it as an indication that one is spiritually mature. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14 says this, You have been Christians a long time now, and you ought to be teaching others. I dare say that there are a number of you sitting in these seats right now that have been here so long that you have been a disciple of Christ for so long that you know your Bible so well that you ought to be teachers by now. Instead, the writer says, you need someone to teach you again the basic things a beginner must learn about the Scriptures. You are like babies who drink only milk and cannot eat solid food. And a person who is living on milk isn't very far along in the Christian life and doesn't know much about what 
about doing what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who have trained themselves to recognize the difference between right and wrong and then do what is right. Now you may be thinking, well, I'm not a teacher, so nor do I have any desire now to be one, right? Therefore, this doesn't apply to me. Well, let me educate you a little bit. The truth of the matter is, is that every Christian is a teacher of sorts. Reread Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, the Great Commission. As a follower of Christ, you and I have been commissioned by Jesus to make disciples and to teach those disciples to obey and observe all that Christ has commanded us. Amen? 1 Peter 3.15 says that we, all of us, as Christians, are to be ready at all times to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is within us. That's assuming the role of a teacher. Colossians 3.16 says that we are to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Amen? If you have children, you are bound by the scriptures to teach your children in the ways of God. Deuteronomy 6, Colossians chapter 6. Too often, though, we teach them the wrong things. Why? Because we can't control our tongues. Children are like mirrors, you know. They reflect our attitudes in life. How many of you have heard your kids repeating something that you said when you didn't think anybody was listening? And usually it's in a place that is most embarrassing. Like at the checkout line in Walmart when your four-year-old pipes up and says something that you wish he hadn't. You see, that point is no better driven home than when you're out for a drive with your kids. Heard of one young boy upon returning from a ride to the grocery store with his dad told his mother, you know what, we passed three, two idiots, three morons, four fools, and I don't know how many airheads. <laughs> In a very real sense, friends, you are a teacher, whether you want the position or not. It is a position that must be approached with an attitude of humility. But when James says, let not many of you become teachers, he was addressing a slightly different issue, however. The problem that James confronted here was the immature attitude of wanting the position of teacher, but not the responsibility that accompanies it. I.e., there are some people who just want to be in the seat of authority. They want to be up front. They want to be telling people what to do, but they want nothing to do with the responsibilities that go along with that, like spending hours and time in the Word, searching out, studying, so that you can accurately divide it. Or they want prominence and they want power, but they're not willing to be held accountable. And there's no better example of that than the propagation that goes on on Facebook. Paul warned Timothy of this danger in 1 Timothy chapter 1. You can turn there if you want to. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. 
wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they are making confident assertions. In the apocryphal book called The Ascension of Isaiah, the prophet believed to have been composed near the apostolic age, it is written, this, these words are written, quote, in those days, the days of Messiah, shall many be attached to the office, destitute of wisdom, multitudes of iniquitous elders and pastors, injurious to their flocks, and addicted to rapine, meaning a forcible seizure of property, which probably may have been happening in James' time. Exactly what he's writing about. Nor shall the holy pastors themselves diligently discharge their duty. It sounds like it could have been written in this month's issue of Christianity Today. I've read of ministries that take people's property. They demand people's property in order for you to be a member of their cult. James is identifying people who have strong opinions and want to propagate them. People who assume the role of teacher and the glory that goes with it, yet having no qualifications whatsoever except a hyperactive tongue and a lust for power. That was also the sin of the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, you can turn there. Jesus really addressed this well. Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor and banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he was in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And that sentiment is going to be visited later on by James in this book. We see a lot of Jesus' teachings in the book of James, don't we? Now, Jesus isn't condemning the use of the title rabbi or teacher or father as a title in that text. What he condemns is the attitude of pretense and pride, which, as John MacArthur says, accords undue spiritual authority to a human being as if he were the source of truth rather than God. Do you understand the difference? So James is saying, don't be so quick to assume the position of teacher because of its perceived prominence. Before you do, you better be willing to shoulder the responsibility that's involved. And one of those is recognizing that as teachers, we shall be under greater judgment than everyone else. We have a higher degree of accountability. That's what James says here in verse 1. The principle is simply this. Increased recognition means increased responsibility. Now, the word greater or stricter here in this verse is the word megas in the original language. It means greater by comparison. Teachers of God's revealed truth are automatically subject to greater scrutiny by God because of their clear knowledge of the things of God. 
The mega buck stops here, is what James is saying. It's not fair, but it's fact. And notice that James includes himself again in the statement. He says, we, my brethren, we, meaning all of us, share this stricter judgment as teachers. Um, I think, well, let's just say this. Luke chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus said, and from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask the more. You can look at the greater context of that this week and study it through, but here's the upshot of the whole thing. Greater responsibility demands great accountability. So if recognition means increased responsibility and greater responsibility demands greater accountability, you can see why James is saying, be careful. I think that if more so-called teachers and preachers understood the incredible thrust of this truth today or actually believed it, there would be a whole lot less self-proclaimed prophets and people who purportedly speak for God. They would be a lot more careful about their calling to the ministry of teaching. Before I went into the ministry, a wise elderly man once gave me this sage advice. He looked at me and, he, and I have since read that Spurgeon gave the same advice to his students. He looked at me and he said, do not enter the ministry if you can help it. And I would give that same counsel to anyone who would ask me. And I have. No one should enter the ministry of teaching God's word if there is anything else that they feel called to do. Why? Because the biblical office of teacher is by divine calling and appointment, not by human ambition. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 in the NIV says, it was he, meaning Christ, meaning God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up to a mature man. It, let me, let's make it clear, it is not a career move. The only reason anyone should assume the role of a spiritual teacher is because God has given that person no other choice whatsoever. You must be compelled to it. I, I didn't really choose to be a pastor teacher. In high school, I was petrified to speak in a classroom of only 10 of my friends. I was a follower, not a leader. When I gave my heart to Christ, I said to Christ, I'll do anything you want me to do. Just don't make me a preacher. <laughs> God's sense of humor is a whole lot better than mine. Please don't misunderstand me in what I'm about to say to you. Even now, there are times when I feel that if there was a faint hint that God would have me do anything else, I'd do it in one split second. But I can't because it's not my choice. I can relate to the words of Paul and Jeremiah. In 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul says, For if I preach, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, Paul says, I am under obligation. I am eager to preach the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, think about Jeremiah and his ministry, that God set him on the field to preach to a nation that would not listen to him for, what, 40 years? Bert's teaching on Jeremiah on Sunday mornings now, and I I would highly encourage you to go to that class. Bert is very excited about it, and he spent a lot of hours preparing for it. Jeremiah said this in verse, chapter 20, verse 9. He said, but if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name than in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. If you've got that feeling, if you've got that burning desire in your heart, God may be calling you to this ministry. But make sure you pray through James chapter 3, verse 1. It's not that I don't like teaching. I love teaching. But the responsibility of accurately dividing the word of truth and handling eternal concepts carries way more stress than anyone should handle. But Jesus can. Jesus can handle that. And that's what keeps me sane. It's a demanding work. Yes, it requires hours of study. Yes, it quite often it means making some pretty unpopular decisions on what to preach on, what to say to people. Yes, but I can't do nor I want to do anything else. Ask any teacher convinced of his or her calling and they will tell you the same exact thing. But there are plenty of people out there assuming the role of teacher, pastor, or pastor teacher, Christian counselor, etc., who don't give a rip about the accuracy of Scripture. They don't care about the teaching of truth of what God's word says. All they want is a platform for their own brand of self-formulated pseudo-spiritual opinion. That's why James warns us about the seriousness of this responsibility. You think I'm a little passionate about this? (laughs) At this point, most of you might be asking yourself, how in the world does that apply to me? Well, apart from the fact that, as I said before, all of us are teachers of a sort, I believe there's another more personal and subtle application of James's exhortation here. How many people today come to church and quietly assume the role of self-ordained teacher? Let me explain. In other words, they hear the teaching and then they leave. And then they proceed to tear apart the message, always applying it to someone else, never themselves. Placing themselves above the whole thing. How often do people attend a conference or a service or a counseling session without a teachable spirit? They don't come to a lecture. They don't come to lecture. No, they don't don't take that position maybe, but neither do they come to learn. They come to analyze and they come to criticize anything and everything that the teacher says. And again, you see it all the time on social media. Now hear me out. I'm not referring to genuine questions of concern. Those are healthy for both the learner and the teacher. Because not every teacher says, accurately every right things all the time so they need to be held accountable in fact a good teacher must be teachable but how often do we come to either put our stamp of approval upon or disapproval on what is is taught not to learn i mean you've done it i've done it 
I believe James would say it is the mark of an immature faith when we do that. It lacks responsibility. The same thing is true when we enter into discussion about any number of controversial subjects today. People assume the role of teacher and make the scriptures say whatever they want it to say, and you and I both know that that's happening in the culture around us. Romans 3.18 says, quoting Psalm 36.1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If we're going to attempt to teach God's word, we'd better be responsible enough to teach what it says, not what we think it ought to say. James says we're under intense accountability. The scripture indicates that there will be a day of reckoning. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And you know what that verse follows? That's Hebrews 4.13. And it follows verse 12. What does Hebrews verse, chapter 4 verse 12 say? It's about the word, right? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So an uncontrolled tongue is the sign of an immature faith, James says, and an immature Immaturity in the faith is exposed by a blatant lack of responsibility. Secondly, verse 2, James says that an immature faith is also exposed by a lack of verbal restraint. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Plato once quipped, wise men talk because they have something to say. Fools because they have to say something. Years ago, I was going through the checkout at a local supermarket. I noticed one of those, those crazy tabloids, right, with the pictures on them and stuff. Have you ever seen one on front of those tabloids? I bet you've seen this one years ago. It horrified me. But it's the epitome of what James is getting at. The headline read this, Man with two tongues speaks two languages at the same time. <laughs> and yes, there was a picture. I have trouble trying to control one tongue, never mind two, in two languages. James not only warns us about being responsible with our words, he gives us the reason why. What does it say there? Why? Verse 2. For we what? We all stumble. We all stumble. That is a statement of universal failure. Right? James is beginning to take the focus off teachers now, and he refocuses it where he really is intending to put it on the everyday man and woman. And then the next section, that's really where it's going to be targeted. Everybody. The emphasis in this verse is on the word all. We all sin in this area. We all stumble in this area. We stagger and we trip over our words and we say things we really, really regret, don't we? The word literally means to trip up. The picture is of a foot striking an obstacle so as to cause one to trip, not as a fatal fall, mind you, but enough to hinder one's progress severely. And in chapter 2, verse 10, the word, the same word, actually refers to a moral lapse. Let me ask you a question. What will trip you up? 
I can tell you what will trip you up. More often than not, it's the same thing that trips me up. It's our tongue. That's the obstacle. James says that we're continually tripping in many ways, and I would, tripping up in many ways, and I, and I would bet that the largest percentage is in the words that proceed out of our mouths. It's a grave danger. And many in the Bible recognize that. Job, chapter 40, verse 4. Job says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand upon my mouth. After all that stuff, 39 chapters in Job, all the talk, God talks, and Job says, I guess I've talked enough. Moses in Psalm 16, I, I'm sorry, Psalm 106, verses 32 and 33. By the waters of Meribah, they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them, for they rebelled against the Spirit of God. And here's the kicker and rash words came from Moses' lips. And guess what those rash words did? They stopped him from going into the promised land. After all those years of service to God, rash words stopped him from going in to the promised land. Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah said, there's no hope for me when he sees God. He falls down on his face. I am doomed. I'm undone because every word that passes through my lips is sinful. And I live among a people whose every word is sinful. And yet with my own eyes I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The great context, the greater context of James 3 tells us that the miracle, that, that the tongue is a menace to every person's life when it goes unchecked. Even more so for the teacher because it's his chief tool. That ability to control the tongue is extremely vital for every one of us. It, it's, it's a barometer of our Christian character. It's a proof that we are growing in the faith or not growing in the faith. How many times a day do you suppose we sin with our mouths? In his book, Everybody, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, author John Ortberg says, the writer of Proverbs put it like this in Proverbs 10, 19. He said, when words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. This remarkable statement says that there is a direct correlation between the number of words we say and the number of sins we commit. Bill Hybels wrote in Making Life Work that it is as if the writer of this Proverbs is saying that we can calculate the relationship between words and sin. So let's try it. Let's generate a sin prediction index, shall we? Assume for the sake of argument that when we speak, that we speak an average of 10,000 words per day. Okay, some people speak a lot more than that. 10,000 words. How many sins would that involve? Well, it's a little hard to calculate, but here's a start. William Backus cites research that indicates that the average person in our society 
get this, lies 200 times a day. That's pretty arresting, isn't it? The average person in our society lies almost 200 times a day. So lying now is just one form of verbal sin, right? Add gossip. Add slander. Add anger. Add bragging. Add insults. Add flattery. Unkept promises. Impression management. It starts to pile up, doesn't it? So let's estimate then the sin quotient at a thousand sins a day. That would yield a ratio of 10 words for every sin. If you could cut the amount of talking you do in half, you'd bring the sin factor down to 500. (laughs) If you can get the word total down to 10 a day, you'd be down to one sin. If you could get it to nine or less, you would be a perfect saint. Obviously, the goal of life is not to produce people who avoid sinning by staying mute all day. But before you write off this proverb altogether, you should know that some wise people in the early church, known as the Desert Fathers, strongly recommended the practice of silence as a spiritual discipline. The number one reason they gave for that is because it is hard to talk without sinning. When we practice the proverb, we begin to learn amazing things that we can live without getting the last word. We can live without trying to make sure we control how other people are thinking about us. We can live without winning every argument, without powering up over every decision without always drawing attention to ourselves. One last observation here. Use wisdom in using silence. Ortberg says if you're a husband arriving home from work and your wife wants to connect soul to soul and ask how your day went, you might not want to say when words are many, sin is not absent. (laughs) Right? If the wife is wise, she may reply with Proverbs 25, 11. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver, which translates to mean, you better start talking, buddy, or I'm going out and buy jewelry. <laughs> See, when we stop talking, we also have the opportunity to engage in something else that James talks about, one of the most important intimacy-building skills in the world, Listening. James says in one of the most often violated commands of Scripture that everyone should be quick to hear and slow to speak. Whenever you open your mouth, James says, you need to have it under control. Otherwise, you become an obstacle to spiritual progress, not only for yourself, but others as well. Be careful what you say and protect your life. A careless talker destroys himself, says Proverbs 13.3. Proverbs 21, 23, he who guards his mouth and tongue guards his soul from trouble. If you can control your tongue, you'll be able to exhibit self-control in just about every other area. You'll be a perfect, meaning mature, fully developed person. 
The word perfect doesn't mean sinless here. There's only one man who ever accomplished that feat, and it was Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He didn't lie 200 times a day. He was truth. And Jesus is our pattern. A controlled tongue is a barometer of spiritual maturity. Show me someone who can't help running at the mouth and I'll show you a spiritual babe in Christ. Have you ever heard the spiritual axiom, it is better to be silent and be considered a fool than to speak and remove every shadow of doubt? Well, that's biblical, you know. That's not just a saying. That's a Bible verse. Proverbs 17, 28 says, even if a fool is, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace, when he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. We all know people who don't say too much, but when they do, it hits the mark. Is that what people say about you? Control your tongue, control your body. Beatitude by James Russell Lowell ought to be included in our repertoire of daily wisdom, I think. Blessed are they who have nothing to say and cannot be persuaded to say it. James isn't advocating that we remain silent, no. He's simply coaching us to be wise in what we do say. Because an unbridled tongue is evidence of an unbridled heart. And, and by, so, no, I'll just leave that. You know, many believers, as we close, stake their claim of Christian maturity on the fact that well, they don't gamble, they don't drink, they don't watch R-rated movies, they don't dance, they don't smoke, blah, blah, blah. Yet these same people will trash each other with their words. Through gossip and lies and verbal tirades, they slay each other with subtle character assassinations. What's the difference, I ask? What's the difference? Might as well go smoke. Not really. But Jesus says, it's, it's, it's what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man because it exposes the nature of our heart in the heat of the moment. It reflects our nature as sinful people in need of grace. And we all need grace. And I'm not standing up here to try to badger you. I'm standing up here preaching to me as well as I preach to you. And especially to me, as James says, because I'm the one that talks all the time. <laughs> I read about a guy. I read about a pastor one time. This is way off the script. I, I read about a pastor that actually stood in the pulpit for 45 minutes. Did I ever tell you about this? 45 minutes and didn't speak a word. He preached the sermon just by looking at people. He didn't say a single word for 45 minutes and people were weeping and falling on the floor in repentance. How do you do that? How do you do that? But that's, the, that's God the Holy Spirit, isn't it? That is the Holy Spirit. Ah, Socrates said, we all need Jesus, don't we? We do. 
Socrates said to one young student, speak, friend, that I may see thee. It's a very profound thought. So need I say more? I don't think so. Except for this. I'll end with Scripture. Psalm 141, 3 and 4. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. Let's pray. Lord, may that be our prayer today. And may we heed it for the sake of your name and for the sake of your glory. Amen.